Okay, hello. Welcome to the special edition of This Week in Intelligent Investing. It's a little different than our typical. I'm sitting here with Isaac Schwartz, a good friend of mine who I actually met at the Manual of Ideas Idea Week 2019. Uh, we went from there to become good friends. We did a diligence trip together not long after, got to know each other even better, and uh, reconvened at uh, Idea Week 2020. Interestingly, we live not far from each other in the U.S., but it took a trip to Switzerland to really uh, meet and get to know one another. Um, Isaac is one of my favorite managers out there. He's a really interesting guy, really worldly and knowledgeable. He could go seamlessly from covering Turkish banks to disruptive innovation in food delivery um, and uh, amongst other areas. So I think that's really a fascinating array of topics. I think it's kind of informed by Isaac's experience having lived one year in Singapore, five years in Hong Kong, and one year in Istanbul. So not many people have experienced that many different regions. And, you know, it's really, really impressive how that's informed Isaac's investment strategy, philosophy, and portfolio composition. Um, one of the investments in particular that I've really been impressed with uh, is Ocado. It's a really interesting company, really interesting environment. Um, and I think it would be helpful to talk broadly with Isaac about delivery, food delivery, and logistics, um, and then maybe get into the, some specifics about Ocado itself. Um, so welcome, Isaac. Thank you for joining us here today. Thanks for inviting me on, Elliot. Very Sounds excited for this. Um, so yeah, maybe start broadly about your uh, interest and experience in food delivery and logistics. You know, I got interested in food delivery a, a, a long time ago because I remember when Seamless launched in New York in the late 90s. And I remember getting together with friends and ordering burgers from Nectar Diner on Madison. And we, we have to have been amongst the first users of, of the service. It was just a few months old. Um, in terms of its incarnation with, uh, as an investment with Grubhub, of course, Grubhub merged with Seamless before they... Uh, went public a, a dozen or so years later. Um, that that was a little bit more of a winding road. Uh, in 2004, I was uh, finishing my last year at Penn and working for a family office in Philly, and they were looking at doing the Series A round with Net-a-Porter, uh, .com in London. And I, I did work on the company, uh, wound up getting sent over there to, to spend time with the, with the founder and CEO. And it, it, it was an early uh, bit of insight into the importance of having just a totally dedicated architecture from the ground up looking to solve uh, one sort of a problem as opposed to, you know, retrofitting uh, existing infrastructure that was out there. Uh, our, 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 our journey with, with Net-A-Porter wound up being a really interesting one because uh, that summer when the family was, was looking at doing the investment, the, the, the big issue was, yeah, well, it's a tiny market and, and there's another guy doing it, ukes.com uh, in, in Milan, Italy. So, you know, it's such a small market and there's already competition. Uh, well, anyway, both companies became hugely successful. Uh, in, in 2010, 
uh, Richemont, sort of the uh, a distant third conglomerate in the luxury sector. Uh, after LVMH and Caring, uh, Richemont owns a lot of uh, Van Cleef and Car- and Arpels and Cartier and a bunch of brands. Um, they 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 acquired Net a Porter, and um, around the same time, I think in two thousand nine, Ukes went public on the Milan Stock Exchange, which is a sleepy little market. Uh, I've invested for fifteen years in a lot of emerging markets and Southeast Asia, and uh, anyway, a, a, a sort of fringe eurozone market like like Italy is just as quiet, just as low volume outside of a handful of the most traded companies. And anyway, uh, Ukes was focused on a slightly different market segment. They were more of uh, clearance merchandise, still looking to help brands preserve uh, image and keep pricing at a good level and not piss off uh, established distribution channels. But distinct from Net-A-Porte, which was an innovator in really just taking the full price on-season merchandise offering uh, of of you know big luxury companies, Armani, and and you name it, and and converting that into the internet. And uh, anyway, what happened was a, a, a few years later they they merged, uh, Richemont and the and the VCs that that had founded Ukes and still controlled the the controlling stake, they all decided it made it made sense from a from an infrastructure uh, inventory control delivery point of view. And so, uh, by 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 following this situation, it started it started to teach me a lot of things about what could be different about about these companies that that start out with a with a dedicated architecture. And so I, I we we wound up investing in in Ukes Netaporte uh, a few years later. But what what was actually the final catalyst was that we we had invested in in Jimmy Chu uh, because it was sort of a, a special situation. It was 80% owned by its shareholder it was listed on an exchange uh, in a country where only a, in the UK where only a single digit percentage of its sales were. Uh, and it had, it had an interesting earnings growth story uh, that had kind of been obfuscated by a lot of investments. But anyway, their, their key internet partner was, was Net-A-Porte um, who, who in turn actually had a B2B service in which they were creating Jimmy Choo's own online store. And we looked at this and we said, how is Bergdorf Goodman on Fifth Avenue going to compete when, when the most important profit centers in that company are the couple of hundred elite personal shoppers with offices up, upstairs from the, from the main store and enormous Rolodexes? To to try to to try to cut these people out, even if you even if you figure out a proper profit share where they will move their their buyers online, just from a from an institutional momentum point of view, to to, to cut that out, we just thought would be would be way too difficult. So, um, 
anyway, the, the reason I, I kind of went on that long aside uh, about Netta Porter is because it, it really, um, our, our long arc with that company really nailed interest in, in food delivery, uh, in Grubhub uh, and in Ocado. Uh, I remember in, in uh, early, early part of the 2010s visiting, uh, visiting friends in central London, ordering, uh, ordering off of Ocado and the convenience and even at that time it seemed like a more sophisticated service than we had in new york um, interestingly fresh direct which i have no uh financial uh interest in it's a private company but i am a, a happy customer so that's it's not a paid ad placement i just i happen to be uh fresh direct has always been a much less sophisticated service uh than Ocado. And, and, and I could feel it, uh, when I was, when I was first coming into contact, uh, with Ocado with customers, uh, th then, then an interesting, uh, thing tipped me off, which was that in 2013, they signed a deal with Morrison's supermarkets in the North of England. And if if uh, some of some of your listeners are, are Game of Thrones fans, then you know we we would all have our uh, conceptions of of Northerners as as tough people and canny people. And in this case, I actually had uh, a, a dear friend in the business who, in a uh, prior life, had been Morrison's accountant in the eighties and nineties and had huge admiration for the management. And when this deal was signed, he said to me, we, you know, we need to look at, uh, we need to look at Ocado as an investment now. And I guess I took a pretty uh, cursory look, uh, did meet with the company, did familiarize myself with them. They had already been public for about three or four years then, but it, it didn't, it, it didn't make sense to me. It was sort of, you know, Ocado reminds me of, 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 of Amazon in, in one way, uh, which is that if you look at the historical financials, these weren't, you know, big money burning companies because the market would not support big losses. Um, you know, some combination, we, we weren't in a permanent uh, zero interest rate environment a decade ago. Uh, the 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 fallout from the from the post two thousand TMT bubble collapse had had made investors uh, more cautious. Uh, you know, whatever it, it was, with a number of these companies, as opposed to with some of the greats of today, uh, with a number of these companies, they 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 were not losing money. You know, they were free cash flow positive for many years at you know, diminished levels, uh, investing enormously in the future, but not um, ru not uh, running losses and getting losses financed through capital raising because the capital raising just wasn't available. And if if we, from kind of a U.S. centric Silicon Valley centric point of view, uh, uh, you know, can think of tricky periods for for capital raising availability. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a, a much more extreme example of that. 
uh, in Europe. And I think that that makes for some tough, keen capital allocators uh, with, with, a, with, a, with a very uh, good appreciation for stretching dollars and not being dependent on financing. So um, when, well, well uh, so, so where do we, a- anyway, a, a few of these themes were being pursued uh, parapassu over a few years. And in 2017, I, I wound up coming back to Ocado. Uh, they were starting to do conferences in the U.S., and I had a chance to meet them uh, over here. And this time, uh, looking at the company, I, I, I thought it was a clear case that they were uh, – going after established industry and infrastructure and that they were willing to make investments that, that these uh, established companies were not. And, um, uh, you know, in particular their, their vision uh, and and I see Okado as having a twin vision of centralized and robotically automated distribution. But if we could leave aside the, the automation point, their, their original vision was centralized distribution and of course, Fresh Direct was doing that here too. But centralized distribution is is an is a interesting case to go after, because as opposed to the rest of the industry that wants to retrofit existing infrastructure, uh, Okado never wanted to do that. Okado wanted to say, "Let me put high capex, and in their case, even higher capex because of the robotic automation." But just the centralization means enormous scale. It means enormous capex into one facility, and uh, but of course, it also means that it creates very good in- economics with 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 incremental uh, or orders added, and it can create uh, very good scale um, to to the throughput. Very interesting, and you know there are a couple themes that I really love from there. Your long arc with both these companies and the industries that you follow. And then you mentioned um, the parallels to Amazon. And one of the things I pick up on here with Ocado is that not only were they investing through the PL like Amazon, but they also had built these tools for themselves to actually, you know, be the supermarket for an end customer. But then at the same time, they were thinking about um using these tools as a way to create new business models and help others do it. So maybe talk a little bit about that element here and, you know, how long, whether that was a vision from the start with Ocado that they do this, build this out and, you know, uh, offer it as a service to others and how the two business models kind of shape up within one company. Here's a place where uh, I think it, it benefits us to be flexible investors, and I appreciate in investing in certain markets, but not as a, I'm not a dedicated UK specialist, for example. I've invested there a number of times over the years. Okado had been telling this story of having developed all these systems and being in a position to market it to other grocers for a very long time. And 
I suspect a lot of the uh, negative view of the company came from the fact that they had been telling this story for a very long time. And so when when we came to the company uh, again in, in 2017, I think local market investors had seen them say for years, we want to market this to other companies. They had done a small, uh, a small sort of uh, uh, down down in the Iberian Peninsula with with Bonpre markets, but but anyway, they had never and and then they had done some some local deals in the UK, but they had never done this big international expansion that they had talked about. When you add in the the Amazon deal to to buy Whole Foods that hit in, uh, I guess it was, er- it was early, mid 2016 and um, led to, you know, a, a further bear attack on Ocado, which, uh, you know, in, in, in retrospect is sort of a funny thing because uh, Whole Foods has five stores in the UK, uh, great stores, but, but five stores. And um, Amazon is, such a fantastic, such an incredible company that it's pursuing many, many important goals at all times. And, you know, uh, boosting these, these five stores in this one country was not, uh, was not top of mind. But, um, but I think it was a case that, you know, great, great things take time and ambitious plans, uh, Okada was founded in 2000, went public in 2010, and, you know, very soon after started to talk about how the systems that they had built had exportability and broader applicability. And it wasn't until November 2017 when they signed a deal with casino supermarkets in in France that this started to materialize. And even then, that deal... It was a multi-year deal. Uh, sorry, it was a. It's a very long deal. It, it, it was a. It was a deal that they said um, could could take uh, up to three years to, to get running. They wound up launching that the the first site with Casino in the Bonlieu of Paris in uh, in in April of this year. So a few months ahead of the schedule announced years earlier and also uh at you know at an at an interesting moment in the in the arc of the the growth of the uh online grocery industry for sure but anyway the point is um i think people uh you know locally in the uk were kind of tired of of, of hearing of this story and not seeing things materialize Some, something that i've always uh in, enjoyed about being an investor in this company has actually been the enormous local chorus of naysayers. Um, I, th- I think you don't. I, I think it's a combination of of the of the the quirky uh, sort of sardonic British uh, humor that um, you know that even here across the pond, a lot of us uh, love and admire. E.G. Woodhouse, and then I also think it's. Um, I, I think it's sadly that there aren't so many uh, there aren't so many great scaled tech stories that that have uh, 
um, that have come out of the country, even, uh, you know, given what a, uh, you know, given what a, what a comparable, uh, you know, R and D culture it is to the U S but it, it hasn't had that, you know, that, that same uh, stock market presence. There are some other, uh, great e-commerce companies, ASOS, uh, um, anyway, you know, what, what that means is that, I mean, if you look at, if you look at the coverage in the, say the FT over the last decade, it's just been astoundingly snarky, uh, from, from, from my point of view. And, you know, Amazon has, has attracted, uh, you know, uh, d- d- admirers and detractors from the start, but there were always, there were always admirers in the press also. Um, uh, and, 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 yeah, I mean, it's been interesting watching some of the, I mean, Amazon in particular has had admirers, but they've definitely had detractors. Ocado, I mean, you see a bear report on it every few months. Um, it's weird to see a company like that attacked, but I think part of it, you know, uh, Henry Ellenbogen, now at Durable Capital, was at New Horizon at Tiro, talks about looking for companies uh, who are small growth companies that have this act one, where they're able to, you know, get a toehold and build a nice growing business, but have built a platform where they could go on to an act two, and kind of pursue line extensions and a much broader business model. So, you know, I mean, maybe one of the things that people miss is the business model is even more advantaged, not being a supermarket that's thought of as how people get food, but a technology platform that could be kind of like turnkey built and licensed to other providers. So like, how do the, how does a business model differ in, in the two? Um, I definitely think that's one of the areas that people get thrown off here. Uh, you're exactly right that they basically totally transitioned their business model where they went from uh, 17 years of being uh, a, an operator in the UK with with one important partnership with Waitrose uh, th- that was supplying a third uh, of their products um, to starting to sign deals. And then it, so in, la- in late 2017, they signed a deal uh, that I mentioned in France. Then in early 2018, they signed deals in Sweden, Canada, and then suddenly in mid 2018, boom, they announced that they were entering the U.S. with a with a big deal with Kroger, and Kroger uh, even made an investment with them. And 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 suddenly it became uh, apparent their their focus. And within uh, uh, about a year later, um, they they basically um, exited the retail business. And by that, I mean, they've, they, they, they merged their retail operation uh, with, with Marks and Spencer. They've kept a 50% interest. I think that they'll always want that 50% interest because uh, it remains their, their testing ground for the technologies. But, but now the, the kind of key, company is the solution provider and it's selling its technology to their uh to their domestic retail subsidiary which is a 50 50 which is a 50 percent subsidiary jv company and also now selling in 
the countries I just mentioned and also Australia and Japan. Uh, and so the, 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 real, the real focus is now um, on supporting grocers in having an extremely uh, efficient online presence as a full end-to-end solution doing the, the, the from, from building the apps and, and taking orders to the to the, the the truck routing and 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 distribution, and then of course the kind of uh, the 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 key piece, um, which is their their uh, their warehousing technology that leads to incredibly high uh, asset turn, um, a, a very rapid velocity of of, of um, inventory. And and very low levels of waste because of the uh, effect of the the centralization. Um, in, in the UK, they have a, a three billion dollar sales business served out of basically out of four facilities, you know, with a few intermediate facilities, but four you know uh, massive scale grocery stores, um, and and, uh, and then. Uh, further improved by the by by the ro- robotic automation so uh in- incredible scale uh of centralization and then just relentless focus on profit uh, on on process improvement yeah i think in the show notes we're gonna have to share a cool video of one of the okada warehouses in action because it's really neat seeing these little bins zip around a room and not uh, collide with one another in the process. Um, in a relationship with Kroger, like who's putting up the CapEx to build one of these facilities. And, you know, when I make a hundred dollar grocery order, um, how do the economics get divided up or is Ocado really just getting paid on providing the technology there? So, uh, there's investment upfront in the facilities by, by, both parties that, that varies according to what market they're in. But when you talk about when you order a hundred dollar basket of, of 40 grocery items, that is, that is the grocer's revenue. So I, I look at Ocado as being their, their sort of a uh, futuristic uh, ERP system that's on, on the hardware and software side. And so it's, it's very deep level of inventory management and inventory physical movement, uh, but but they're very much a, um, a a technology provider. So it's the it's the grocer's sales, um, and 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 they charge uh, you know management fees, capacity fees to to run this this uh, dedicated capacity that they that they build. Yeah. And then, you know, now we find ourselves. So this all was being built and getting ready for what ultimately is one of the biggest accelerants and stress tests of the Ocado model with COVID where everyone's, you know, forced to stay at home. And suddenly these industries are digitizing, you know, much faster than we'd ever imagined. So how is that pulled forward the future or changed your outlook and perspective on, uh, Ocado? So the, 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 the case that, that we always saw for, for Ocado was 
the 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 efficiency that that it, that it adds to the um, to the grocery buying process. And in particular, I, I think of it as a stage one value proposition and a stage two value proposition. And the stage and, and none of this has anything to do with the pandemic. So we'll, we'll get to the we'll get to COVID and a stay-at-home culture. But but the basic stage one value proposition is just is convenience. And uh, you know there are there are uh, worries that people have that that need to you know people need to uh, you know need to learn about the uh, freshness and inventory control and 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 why with, with days cut off of foods inventory cycle you are getting a better and and more efficient and therefore at the margin cheaper product. But there's really the stage two value proposition. Uh, which I think is 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 much deeper, but is unseen. Which is the efficiency that this adds to the to the food sector by shifting to sort of a a, a just in time um, uh, inventory control system. And so, you know, st- stage one is 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 the marketing uh, is the marketing advantage, and that was what was affected by the pandemic. But but the, the deeper uh, stage of, of of sense behind this business model um, is is that by by cutting out intermediate distribution points, um, the 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 food industry has a higher turnover, has a, has a more rapid turnover, and and can have better prediction, better control over its inventory than needing to send out uh, inventory to intermediate warehouses and then send them out to too many grocers and and you know in 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 big cities you feel this i mean in 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 new york i I always say you can when you walk into a grocery store you when you walk into any retailer in new york you can tell when the the merchant owns their real estate because you know we wind up in a situation i live in the east village and you know we have some Hardware stores and and some some sort of st- standalone butchers that are like you know still have uh, uh, you know wood chips on the floor and um, you, you know you can very much feel in some of these stores and in, in stationary stores that um, that that the that the proprietor of the store uh, bought th- that person or 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 an aunt or a parent or grandparent bought the property and the, and the, and the, the, the rental is not, uh, is not baking into the equation. When you get to the food industry, of course, it means that you're, you, you know, you're winding up with, uh, many, many different sales points and you need to, uh, and then at that time you either need to pick and choose what inventory you're offering. So those stores have, have a fraction of the, of the SKU selection you need to charge more to make up for the intermediate distribution points and, or you need to have, uh, you know, l- less fresh product when it's on the fresh side. And it's, you know, it's, it's, you must, you must pick between those, uh, between those circumstances. Yeah. When you say that, I think about like on the other side of the spectrum, there's a company like Instacart who's sending someone into a supermarket to like fetch individual pieces for you. Um, and it's not really necessarily that different 
on the back end of the supermarket model. It's more about who's uh, pulling the stuff together and getting it to your door. So maybe, you know, I've heard you talk about in the past the various different uh, models towards logistics and getting, you know, groceries to the house. So what are some other uh, approaches like Instacart and what else? Uh, you mentioned Fresh Direct. Uh, you know, how, how do these companies differ from one another? Who else is competing in this area? And what are some other companies you might admire uh, taking this kind of a, uh, trying to bring disruption to, to food delivery and logistics? Well, first of all, you mentioned Instacart. Um, I have an enormous ad- amount of admiration for Instacart, but the admiration is about the, the business savviness of the management the incredible speed with which they uh, roll out and move forward services, but but not with the core proposition of what they're offering. Um, but but I'll, I'll I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, you, you mentioned Fresh Direct also, or I, I mentioned that I, that I love using Fresh Direct. Uh, Fresh Direct is this centralized model. Um, Fresh Direct is. Uh, is quite automated. It's not as automated a, as an Ocado Hive, but it's it it um, you know has has good levels of automation, and it has uh, it has good centralization, and um, I mean it, it has extreme centralization. I should say they 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 operated for almost twenty years out of um, Fresh Direct and Ocado were both started right around ninety nine two thousand. And, and Fresh Direct operated out of Long Island City all these years. And then uh, about one year ago, moved to the South Bronx to, uh, uh, to, to an interesting area that the city has very uh, ambitious plans to, to, to improve. Uh, and that, anyway, Fresh Direct's one facility serves, um, you know, Connecticut down to the DC metro area, uh, which is a, you know, which is of course a testament to uh, to, to, to the efficacy of, of, of order centralization. Ocado is, Ocado's first four facilities in the U.S. are going to be in Dallas, Atlanta, Cincinnati, and Orlando, Florida. Um, Cincinnati is, is Kroger's hometown, and Dallas and Atlanta are, are competitive markets that Kroger's in. But, um, but Florida, it's actually Groveland, Florida, is a really interesting test case because Kroger is not present in that market. Uh, Kroger is building a facility uh, basically in between Orlando and Tampa, a little closer to Orlando, that's going to be able to serve both metro areas, but that from a marketing point of view is going to need to uh, you know, go for the jugular of Publix, a very beloved brand. Um, by, by Floridians. So it'll be really interesting to see if the value proposition that emanates from centralization and quality centralization, automated centralization, if the value proposition is such that they'll be able to, uh, to have an effect on that market. So that's really of the first four Kroger facilities that are opening uh, in, in the next half year, that that's kind of the one that I'm the most interested in, 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 seeing what comes out of there. Um, but, but, but to come back to Instacart, Instacart's management it, it, it is, there's some of these incredible people that saw 
a gap in the market and then just moved so rapidly to to address it. And, And in particular, they saw a gap in the market that the industry did not see. And so grocers were not doing a good job at building up delivery capability, aside from, by the way, the largest grocer in the country, uh, which is Walmart, which had already been testing out interesting things like pick up and go like order in advance and pick up. Um, but, but, but most grocers had not been, had not been testing out technologies and, and the guys at Instacart, uh, and their their amazing founder, they basically saw saw this and said, "Let's let's let's give the industry, uh, you know, let let's put them in business overnight." Uh, but but the the thing that the thing that Ocado and uh, Fresh Direct and believers in in centralization would would take issue with is that they would say that ultimately uh, Instacart is a, is a Band-Aid in, in its current form. Now, the fact is Instacart has become so big and so successful that they have incredible customer data and, uh, and, and, and they have uh, their own forms of sophisticated technology. Uh, and so it, it'll be very interesting. to. I've heard rumors that that Instacart is, is uh, I mean, there's, there's articles online that, that Instacart's uh, ready for its IPO. And I'm sure coming off of the back of a pandemic year, the numbers, you know, really, uh, you know, were really great this year, I'm sure. But, but, but Instacart is, uh, in, in, its current, in its current iteration, it's a, it's, a, it's a labor arbitrage. It's a gig economy company that's... Uh, you know, some people are willing to pay more for groceries and, and there are people, uh, you know, willing to be paid to go get groceries. Uh, the, the, cent- the concept behind centralization is, is no, is families are willing to spend, uh, you know, the prices that they know on groceries and people are not, you know, aside from maybe some very privileged people, uh, you know, people are not willing to spend more for groceries, and, and therefore you need to you need to find a way to have a relentless focus on cost, and 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 adding a layer of infrastructure over the world's existing infrastructure is not um, is is not cutting out that cost. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, I mean. You know, with COVID starting, I used Instacart for the first time. I obviously used it half dozen or more times uh, since the lockdowns began. Um, but it does seem like there's this, we're in this state of flux between a future world and today's world. Like if you fast forward 10 years, do you think these two business models, these two approaches will coexist? Or do you think everything's going to move the way of centralization? I, I think that... All retail, as we have seen, is in the process of uh, needing to have relevance in the form of experiences and needing to not be afraid of e-commerce. If you are are trying to control your customer, then 
then, then, then that's a losing proposition. If you're trying to serve the customer, then that's a winning proposition. Um, you know, a, a company that, that, uh, that I admire so much as a customer and have been a shareholder of over the years, I, I know you guys had a good episode on, on, on Nike uh, some months ago. And that's such a great example of a com- of a company that sees how important the internet is, know- knows that sees that people want, like e-commerce, um, but then also knows the tactile nature uh, of, of their products. And so, you know, you go into one of the big Nike stores in New York, and you walk into a into a virtual into a virtual putting ground, and they have treadmills set up. With three hundred, with uh, two hundred seventy degree wraparound, uh, you know, go for a run on the beach in Rio uh, experiences, and the, and 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 they're they're not even pushing you to. I mean, you go into a Nike store, em, employees are are just so happy and so friendly, and have such a passion for the product, and you know, must love the, the discounts on the product, and it's not. Uh, there's no, you're not getting pushed into buying anything there. You're getting information on the products and the whole way that the company, I guess this flies in the face of what I opened with saying why Net-A-Porter is so much better than Bergdorf Goodman. <laughs> I guess, I guess Net-A-Porter is better than Macy's and Bergdorf's because Macy's and Bergdorf's are not as good because, because Nike is, and Nike is not um, trying to control you and uh you know same same thing with apple you know they're 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 uh apple stores nike stores samsung stores are highly experiential there's much fewer of them there's one in the meatpacking district in new york um the these are stores supporting a digital flywheel um and 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 these and these stores are going to be around uh some of instacart's business it is coming from stores that are not going to be around stores that uh, stores that don't provide nice enough in-store experiences for people to want to shop there stores that either are habitually purchased and therefore still top of mind, or, you know, in some areas, maybe the, the closest in some areas that aren't, don't have as, as, as dense uh, number of grocery stores as big cities um, and then, you know, for those stores to, to, to have Instacart shoppers for, for, for a while um, make, makes sense. But, but the way I see it, that's not a full embracing of e-commerce. That's not a full embracing of your customer to just serve them however they want to be served. That's just, uh, you know, a, 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 a pretty basic level extension of what's already provided. Yeah, that's really interesting. This idea that the store exists not to sell to you, but for you to experience and deepen your relationship with the with whatever it is that you're shopping for is really, you know, a profound change and it'll have big consequences for a lot of industries. When you're talking this through, I'm thinking like what's gonna happen with, with strip malls and, and, and real estate? I know that's a bit of a tangent, but you know, I, I'd imagine there are pretty uh, big ramifications. Um I want to go back to what you said earlier on about how you have these this long arc with these industries and these companies you're involved in. And I know there are other uh, places that you've gone now informed by your experience with Okado and with food delivery and logistics. 
uh, maybe talk about some of these other opportunities and what you've seen and how you ended up getting there. Uh, you know, I, I know there's some really interesting ones. Well, it, it, it's, it definitely pivots off of what you just said about, you know, what is the effect going to be on, on strip malls? Um, you know, what does it mean for the future of, of commercial real estate? Because um, we, you know, we see, we, we see the effect that e-commerce has had going from nothing to, you know, to, to 15, 20% of, of, of markets. And uh, you know, it's a pretty reasonable bet that a decade from now, you know, the, 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 there'll be another, you know, there'll be another doubling, um, uh, you know, because certain product category, I mean, first of all, a, a lot of older generation people learned e-commerce during the pandemic because it suddenly became relevant to them in a way that it never had. But then you have a lot of younger people that, you know, have for particularly for a lot of product categories have never had the experience of, of going and buying it. And they're not going to suddenly learn uh, to, 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 to buy certain uh, items offline that they, you know, that they became consumers uh, of in an online. So, you know, an, an interesting company that, that uh, or I should say an interesting market that we've come across for this is, uh, is, is Hong Kong, uh, where uh, where I lived for five years and, and um, you know and very much love the city. It's a it's uh, incredibly crowded and exciting and incredibly uh, beautiful nature. It's one of the I think it's the only place I I, I know like it where you you can um, you can be on on Connet Street, which is Wall Street of Hong Kong, and and you know, get in a taxi and. 15, 20 minutes later, you can be uh, kayaking in the South China Sea. So it, it's, it's, it's a very varied, um, uh, it, it's a very varied environment. Um, it is a place that for the longest time had the most remarkably low penetration of e-commerce. And there, you know, there's, there's different reasons for that. Uh, it has one of the highest uh, real estate costs in the world, maybe the highest. And so, uh, you know, many people live in, in very small apartments and people like to get outside and the weather uh, is extremely clement year round. And so every neighborhood has has all sorts of stores. And so the the the, the e-commerce penetration was incredibly low um, for 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 all time. Um a, a, you know, a company that interests us that's changing it is sort of the Okado of Hong Kong. Uh, it's called Hong Kong Television. With, uh, the name is a is a nod to a to a prior incarnation of the company in which it was uh, trying to uh, buy a uh, a TV license from the government, and they they wound up in a sort of protracted dispute over buying the license. The CEO, uh, the, the founder CEO, is, is extremely famous there. He's kind of viewed as a as an outsider, uh, outsider type of manager. Um, and anyway, over the last half dozen years, they uh, transitioned their business. It had originally been a in in telecom, uh, then in then in TV. They transitioned their business into e-commerce and grocery e-commerce 
they're they're different from uh, from Ocado in that they're they're a hybrid one uh, P and three P logistics model. So uh, many small vendors have stores uh, over the HKTV mall, which is their uh, their site. But um, but 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 the the basic concept uh, is that you know Hong Kongers want to shop online also, and so they went and they built all this infrastructure. And they they have uh, you know very sophisticated levels of automation um, in 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 their warehouses that are all around the SAR. Um, I, I I I say that they're to me the the company that's interestingly unautomated, and I can tell you the the is Amazon. And and when I look at at Amazon's lower level of automation, I, I, to me there's the one clear reason, and then I have my one little conspiracy reason. The, the, the clear reason for Amazon's uh, low focus on automation is that Amazon is such an incredible company, so far ahead of everyone, so far ahead of the U.S. e-commerce landscape, that that is not where they need to invest in order to stay ahead. And they are already so far ahead of people, of competitors, that that incremental dollar spend and, um, you know, they talk about incredible capital out allocators. You know, people forget Amazon Amazon only raised equity capital twice. It did a tiny IPO in 1997 and it did a a, a big for the day follow-on primary in 99 and 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 they never know sold stock again. So these are incredible capital allocators and they see fit to spend that incremental dollar on marketing and on it, uh you know developing more predictive technologies for for shoppers and and on uh on all aspects of their business. My conspiracy theory for why they haven't uh, automated so much is that being as successful as they are, clearly they are you know, probably the most political uh, and polarizing company. And you know, I remember when they were coming into New York and, and local p- politicians were upset and too much is being done for them and all this. And so I think, it, I think they find it useful that you know, you can pick a random state and there's a decent chance that they'll have, you know, 10 or 20,000 or more employees. And, um, you know, that can be a very good thing. Uh, if, if, if a state is, if, if New Jersey isn't happy with them for some reason and they say, yeah, well, you know, 25,000 New Jerseyans work for us. So, you know, be, be gentle on me anyway. Um, so, you know, when I, when I look at Hong Kong, the, uh, the level of automation is even beyond a, a, an Amazon, maybe not quite at the level of, of an Ocado. Um, now, what was interesting was people were very skeptical of this model for a long time, um, even though the company was growing at, uh, you know, 40, 50 percent a year, their GMV for years, uh, even though thanks to their prior incarnation, as a, as a television company, they have very good television studios and they've done very innovative things on the side of home shopping and, and media. And um, they, they, they've, they brought a very exciting offering on, on, on the marketing side. Uh, it, it sort of took this pandemic year and in this pandemic year, I guess two things happened. Um, first of all, their GMV, they, they report monthly numbers, uh, monthly, you know, uh, extract uh, abbreviated numbers. Their GMV is going to be up 
around 120% for 2020 over 2019. And they've, uh, they disclosed in, in June or July that on a net, net bottom line basis, forget about any adjustments to any numbers, they are fully profitable this year. And, um, you know, and, and at a, at a reasonable level of, um, of a few percent on, on GMV, which is a, which, you know, which is a good margin on, uh, on concessionary fee for three P business or on, uh, on, you know, gross profit for one P business. Uh, and, um, and, 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 and it's interesting to see, and the, the stock has kind of continued to trade, uh, as a COVID stock. And by that, I mean, Although it's it's performed strongly this year, as of course it should, since the fundamentals have been great, uh, it, it's also had you know interesting periods of weakening, uh, including recently when when the SAR was opening up again, uh, and and you know I look at it like who, who wants to what, once you realize the magic of getting uh, of 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 getting stuff delivered and and you see the quality, freshness, prices, and convenience. And, and, you know, and then you, then you sort of bake in, then you bake in, um, it it can be tough when, when people are are paying their own way to go get things and putting, you know, modest amount of gas in the car, taking, you know, 15 minutes to commute, spending a half hour somewhere or an hour or waiting online, then coming back. It can be tough to kind of, value the time. And it's like, oh, you know, that's just part of the shopping experience. Um, and, and, and maybe when, when the only thing, only alternative available is some, uh, you know, very fancy service like Instacart. And they're specifically saying, well, for this hundred dollar basket of groceries, will you pay $120? You might say to yourself, eh, I don't know. What, what's my time worth? I don't know how to calculate it exactly. And, and I, I already have this this you know habitual thing where you know I go to the grocery. Um, once that kind of all gets all gets you know t- ripped apart <laughs> because you're scared to go to the grocery because you don't want to be out extra. Um, and if you do want to be out extra, it's because you want to be you know doing something fun. Um, and then once it works its way through and you see, wow, it's sort of the same sort of the same price, same freshness, same quality. It's a better selection. Um, maybe you notice it's even a little bit better uh, quality at the same price. Suddenly, your uh, you know your bearings get 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 reoriented. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then you come to think one of, one of the things I've been really focused on. So you said their GMV growth rate effectively doubled. You think about this business model, it's obviously got to be like pretty high fixed versus variable costs. So the incremental margin is high. That's where profitability comes from. So now you have a company that's got way more resources to invest going forward than they had in the past. So where are they going to invest? Is it more going to be in, uh, you know, customer acquisition or are they going to really, do they have levers to pull on kind of enhancing their level of automation? How, how does that go from here? Well, I look at the size of, you know, there'll be a little under a billion dollars in GMV in 2020, uh, far, far and away the largest in online. Uh, but 
but you know, in a in a region of seven and a half million people that has one of the highest incomes of anywhere in the world. So they they have uh, they have so much to grow uh, locally that I that um, you know there there are enormous retailers in Hong Kong, and I, and I think that they have not had to adapt and they are going to be forced to have some sort of a reckoning, whether it's by this company or by another. But, but interestingly, in the case of HKTV, they, um, they, they've announced uh, in, in some uh, local interviews that, that the founder, Ricky Wong, gave, he mentioned how inspired he had been by Ocado. Um, and then they've actually announced that they have approached regional uh, uh, regional cities uh, about trying to partner with, um, with, with, with providers. Now, once you start moving out in, you know, Hong Kong is this protected little place. Once you start moving out in Asia, you, you generally find, uh, one of, one of two things has, has happened. Uh, one of three things I should say, either you start looking in a place like Taiwan or, or China or Korea, and there are some very, very strong incumbents already. Uh, you know, these are places with, um, you know, in, in, in incredibly commerce present. Or you find regions where uh, China has tried to make inroads, so uh, where, where large Chinese companies have tried to make inroads. So, uh, you know, in, in, in Thailand, uh, their, their big retailer, the Central Group, uh, Jindu, uh, J, uh, JD.com, uh, did, did a deal there. Um, in Southeast Asia, uh, Alibaba had, Alibaba had, had been the leader, uh, and had been the first mover, uh, with some tough competition in Indonesia, but, but had, had kind of been ahead with its Lazada brand. Um, and then, uh, a, a company that we had, <laughs> That we had made a, a small investment in a couple of years ago because it it, it was um, it was still a, a, a ways away has really uh, grown into a special thing which is uh, Sh- uh, Shopee which is the, um, the the e-commerce brand of a of a, a Singapore company called called C Limited uh, listed on NYSE. Um, but then the, the third thing that you encounter uh, so so the first thing is if HKTV tries to go overseas. They're going to encounter strong incumbents. Uh, the the second thing they're going to encounter is some you know some big partnerships. If if uh, uh, J- uh, Chinese or Japanese companies have tried to enter markets, and then the other thing is that um, there there are a lot of regions that are very promising, but that do have very large populations, including many uh, much lower income people. So so for example, I mentioned that JD had gone into Bangkok. Um, this should be an amazing market because uh, t- uh, Thailand is a, is a, is an economic powerhouse of a country. Uh, Bangkok is is an extremely wealthy city, um, but Bangkok has also had a you know nonstop migration uh, into the city from the countryside for you know since World War II, and 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 it's ongoing. And so it does mean that that Instacart model that I mentioned. Um, of just retrofitting existing infrastructure that could have a much longer tail uh, in a city like Bangkok or Ho Chi Minh or, or, or KL um, uh, because 
um, because it is it is much easier to 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 hire um, uh, to, uh, to to hire shoppers and to hire support. But even there, I think that that the centralized model makes a ton of sense. And you know, uh, Bangkok, KL, these are cities with enormous, enormous uh, affluent populations. I mean, you know, many, many, many millions of upper middle class people. Yeah, it's so interesting how you've thought about this from many different angles, being, you know, the various business models starting in the developed world, in the UK, the US, and then thinking about it globally. So like, you know, HKTV, it sounds like a second act might be a little tougher in going international, but do you think they have, uh, I guess the runway seems long enough in, in Hong Kong itself that they could keep going for quite a while? Elliot, I will tell you this. Um, and, and, you know, we can talk about the long path we've had with Ocado, but when we invested in Ocado first, it was just predicated on what they were doing in the UK. And it sounded credible and it sounded interesting what they were going to do overseas, but we were not, you know, you know, we didn't, we didn't have the vision to bake that into the valuation or, you know, would have been my only, inv- <laughs> <laughs> um, HKTV is the same story. We are investing in this company based on what they are doing today in their home market, what the, uh, you know, what the path, what, what we see that could be. Um, it will be incremental if they, uh, if they develop any of these other uh, things that they're talking about. And we're certainly watching very closely. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, you know, I want to be mindful of your time here. If I could ask one more question about like this whole space. So we've talked about, kind of the new upstarts, but who are some of the companies that you think are, and I mean, I guess some of these come to mind just off of what you've been saying, but who's not well positioned for the future of the world? Like what are some legacy companies who you think really have to either um, kind of re revise their strategies or change their approach or, you know, who, who's going to be the most disrupted companies here? Well, so the grocery space is definitely going to become much more consolidated as it uh, as it shifts online. And so the, the 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 best big players that are doing great things in the e-commerce space, like Kroger, like Walmart, are are positioned to take share. Um, on the other hand, you know you've started to see interesting movements at the smaller end of the space of clearly very canny business people who understand that they're not positioned for that shift. And I guess two, two examples in the New York area I would highlight um, would be uh, King Colin Supermarkets of Long Island, which was around three dozen stores, around a hundred, uh, hundred plus year old family business that had been public decades ago, the family had taken it back over, um, sort of a, a beloved chain in Long Island that a year ago quietly said, we're done. And um, they sold to, to Ahold, the, the, the Dutch supermarket giant that is extremely important in the Netherlands, but that's actually the, um, the, the, the third or fourth largest player in the US. They're around the same size as Albertson Safeway. 
uh, Ahold in the U.S. owns Stop and Shop, Giant, um, uh, no, anyway, Lion. Name, what, which? Food Lion as well, right? Something Food like Lion, Hennepin, uh, a, a, a lot of uh, brands up in, um, uh, up in the Northeast. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, the, the Cullen family made this decision that, you know, this, this, you know, golden goose that our family built up over, you know, four or five generations, let's exit because we're not going to make the investments required. Um, in, in New York city, uh, a, a, a major local businessman, uh, uh, John Katzimatidis, who has Gristidis and, and D'Agostino's grocers, uh, they have slowly exited the business. Um, in South Brooklyn, they built a very, uh, it, it, they have a very impressive uh, kind of mixed commercial facility that came, that came out, of, uh, out of a grocery store that, you know, that, that, that had expanded. Because I think that the history that you have with a lot of these companies is that for a long time, these local grocers were sort of, uh, local monopolies, um, because, uh, you know, whether you shopped yourself or, or, uh, you, you had someone or a family had someone they would send to do the shop, whatever it was, um, you know, there were, you, you were constrained by geography. And so these were very good, good businesses for decades. And then it made sense to own the real estate because it would be a long lived, uh, you're not going to move it. It will be there as, you know, as long as the neighborhood is there. Um, so, so I don't think that those business, I, I would say that those businesses that I just mentioned, uh, uh, King Cullen and D'Agostino's would be poorly positioned, but they're not poorly positioned because they're, they are transitioning their businesses. So, um, uh, I, I, I think that, that there's going to be a, today, um, Walmart is around 20% of our market in the U S uh, it's, it's just a third of Walmart's business is their U S grocery business, but it's, it's around 20% of the U S grocery market. Um, Kroger is the next largest, uh, is, is around two thirds that size. Um, uh, Albertsons, uh, Ahold, there, 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 and then there are some some regionally very strong players that have very high shares, uh, HEB in in Texas, Publix. Um, I think that that for the uh, for the kind of regionally dominant companies that transition well, they're in a really great position because the, uh, because that you know they have marketing advantages, they have sourcing advantages, and. Uh, you know, the last piece is they need to be like Nike and really embrace giving the customer what they want and not try to uh, control, micromanage the sales channel because, oh, well, you know, this is a little more profitable today or we're a little more experienced at it and we don't want to devote the resources to, to needing to do that. Um, but yes, I, we... <laughs> We are looking for you know interesting uh, shorts that that um, that are not positioned like that and that can potentially um, you know be be left behind in that middle. That certainly makes sense. Well, Isaac, this has been a fun and fascinating conversation. 
Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom on this industry that literally touches our lives every single day. So, you know, really deep and insightful and and global. So thank you so much. Thank you, Elliot.